Good morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 6. We'll be getting there in just a moment. Let me say, uh, just as a follow-up to our prayer time, in the middle column on Pray Without Ceasing is the name Steve Hughes. Steve's grandmother and my grandmother were sisters, were related in that way. Uh, Steve has had cancer, had a tumor removed out of his sinus cavity behind his eye, basically. Uh, it's been through chemo and radiation, now trying to recover from that. But Steve called me this week, and we got together, and uh, we had the opportunity to baptize Steve into Christ this week. So we praise the Lord for that. So continue to pray for him as he tries to get over. He's through all the treatments and things now, just trying to recover. And So keep him in your prayers. In Luke chapter 6 is where we're at today and down in verse 46. There are two sermons in the Bible preached by Jesus that have the same conclusion. They are the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 and the Sermon on the Plain here in Luke chapter 6. So listen to the conclusions of these two sermons. In Luke 6, verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts upon them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation upon the rock, and when a flood rose, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house upon the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. Now in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 24, here's the conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and burst against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and burst against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. The result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So Jesus tells a story of two men here, a parable of two men that build houses on different kinds of foundations. One builds on solid rock, the other on shifting sand. Luke says, upon the ground. You can imagine the result that when the storms came, only one house survived. Now, a parable. We've learned that the meaning of the word parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. The word itself, coming from the Greek word parabole, means to throw alongside of. That's the literal meaning of the word, but it's a story that is thrown alongside of a truth 
in order to reveal that truth more clearly. In fact, sometimes it's used to conceal the truth from those whose hearts are hardened and whose ears are closed. Now, unlike parables that are in part meant to conceal, the meaning of this parable at the end of these two sermons is crystal clear. And what's the meaning? Obviously, that obedience to Jesus' teaching is the only sure foundation for life, right? Yeah, you got to do what he says. It's not just what a man hears, believes, plans, or professes that counts, but it's what he does. It's like James writes in James 1.22, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And in James 2.14, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? What's the answer? No. Doesn't that sound a lot like Jesus' warning about the house that fell with a great crash? So in his infinite wisdom, Jesus knows that one of the most deadly temptations that we, his followers, will face is the temptation to hear but not do, to understand but not obey. And so if there's any lesson needed by Christians today, I think it's the implication of this parable that just knowing Scripture and having perfect attendance in Sunday school or even getting a Bible college education is not enough. We must obey the Lord. Obedience. As we quote the Great Commission in Matthew 28, and we emphasize the go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. Don't forget the last part. Teaching them to observe, and some Bibles use the word obey. Teaching them to observe or obey everything that I've commanded you. Don't forget that part. We must never forget, Jesus said in John 14, 23, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. And in John 15, 14, You are my friends if you do what I command. So what Jesus expects of us then is for us to say, I understand and I'll do it. Don't leave off the last part. Now, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, and in the Sermon on the Plain that we've been looking at here in Luke 6, what has Jesus commanded that we need to understand and do? Let me give you a brief sketch. Both of these sermons include some Beatitudes, where we're to be poor in spirit, or to be those that mourn over our sin, that we're to be meek, that we should hunger and thirst for righteousness, we should be merciful, be pure in heart, be a peacemaker, stay strong when persecuted for your faith. We're the salt of the earth. We're the light of the world. Let your light shine. Don't neglect the commandments of God. Be reconciled to your brother or sister in Christ before you come to worship. Don't commit adultery or divorce your spouse. Be faithful to your mate. Don't make false vows. Don't seek revenge. Love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, love your enemies like Jesus did. Be holy as God is holy. Don't practice your faith just to be noticed by men. If you need an example of how to pray, God gave us one. 
Forgive others so God will forgive you. Don't lay up treasure on earth but in heaven. Don't worry about the basic needs of life. Seek first the kingdom of God and God will provide those things for you. Don't condemn others. Don't be a hypocrite. Take care of cleaning up your own life before you try to help someone else with theirs. Don't try to remove the speck from your brother's eye when you got a beam sticking out of your own eye. Don't give what's holy to the dogs. Don't cast your pearls before the pigs. Be persistent in prayer. Practice the golden rule. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. Walk the narrow road that leads to life, not the broad road that leads to destruction. Don't be misled and deceived by false prophets. Do the will of your Father in heaven. And then finally these parables. Act on the words of Jesus. You've heard them. Now do them. That's just a thumbnail sketch of these sermons and the things Jesus has been teaching, of which he concludes and says, the wise man's the one that hears these words and does them. A foolish man hears them, pays no attention. So it's no wonder Jesus insisted so strongly on obedience at the end of these sermons. When we hear and understand and then intentionally disobey, everybody suffers. And Jesus knew that. And that's why he told this parable. When Jesus began with the word therefore in Matthew 7 verse 24, he connected the parable with the central teaching in the previous section. The story of the builders helps illustrate the statement in Matthew 7 21 where we read, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The parable further emphasizes and illustrates that. Or as Luke says in Luke 7, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? Words are cheap. Jesus is looking for action. And the action He wants, very simply, is for us to put His words into practice. Now at the outset, the wise man that hears is no different from the foolish man that hears. They both have the same opportunity to know the will of God, but they respond differently. One obeys, the other does not. In the future, some of Jesus' hearers would include Pharisees who would not obey. Just two short chapters later in Matthew chapter 9, they will hear, but they will accuse Jesus of blasphemy, and they will indict Him for eating with tax collectors and sinners. In Luke's account, in Luke chapter 7, in the next chapter, we haven't got there yet, but there's the contrast between Simon the Pharisee, in whose house Jesus was a guest, and a woman that had lived a sinful life. Both heard Jesus' teachings, but whereas the woman wept spontaneously over the feet of Jesus and received the forgiveness of her sins, Simon struggled throughout the whole encounter with Jesus' very acceptance of such a sinner. Fact is, Simon probably identified with Jesus' critics, with the religious leaders, when he should have identified with the woman. But the point for us today is that having access to Bibles and electronic devices that have Scripture on them and hearing sermons and lessons, we have ample opportunity to know who Jesus is and what He wants us to do there's also more devotionals and study Bibles than ever before in the history of the church. But now we have the responsibility to do it. 
It's called decision time. And the decision that we make every day is whether or not to put the words of Jesus into practice in our lives. Now notice what Jesus says in Luke 6 verse 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words, my words, he says. That phrase carries with it a claim about Jesus' deity and about Jesus' authority. And it did not set well with the religious leaders of his day. But Jesus was referring to his divine nature. And it was that divine nature that gave him the authority to call people to repentance and to heal various diseases, to calm the storm and cast out demons and forgive sins and raise the dead. Now, where did Jesus get that authority? What gives Jesus the right to insist that we obey his words? Well, first, his authority was derived from his relationship with the Father, with God the Father, because Jesus is the preexistent Christ. He is the Word that was God from the beginning and later became flesh and lived among us, according to John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. He's the image of the invisible God by whom all things were created, Colossians 1, verses 15 and 16. He's the God-servant who humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 8. He's the radiance of God's glory, sustaining all things by the word of his power, in Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 3. He had this authority, folks, from the beginning. It's no wonder that his hearers were amazed at his teaching, because he did teach as one who had authority. Because he did. He was the authority. He was God in the flesh. But secondly, he earned that authority by doing the will of his Father. By practicing what he preached. By submitting in total obedience. You remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Perhaps Jesus' greatest storm. And that's where the Son of Man wrestled with the biggest decision of his life whether to call legions of angels to rescue him or to go through with the Father's plan for the redemption of mankind. That is where he was in anguish, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. That's where he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup be taken from me. But it's also where he made the final decision I took him to Calvary, yet not as I will, but as you will. In other words, Gethsemane is where Jesus said, I know what God wants me to do, and I'll do it. And he did. So both the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew and the Sermon on the Plain in Luke concludes with the same parable about the wise man and the foolish man. The first builder was wise because he built on rock. Luke adds that he dug down deep to bedrock in order to find a foundation that would be firm enough for that type of terrain. Building a house on rock is possible in many parts of Palestine, 
the lands of the Bible. The topography there includes areas of sandstone and basalt and chalky rock and limestone. The temple itself in Jerusalem stood securely on a rock base. In the Old Testament, rock was a metaphor for a solid, stable, immovable foundation. And God himself is often portrayed as the rock on whom we can build our lives. And the word rock here is the same word that Jesus used in Matthew 16, 18, when Peter had said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, I say unto you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. That rock was the fact that Jesus indeed was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now by contrast, the foolish man, he did it fast. He did it cheap. He built on sand. And unlike rock, sand is loose and unstable and extremely movable. And although it is not smart, there are many places in Palestine where a house can be built on sand. Not a smart thing to do. There are other locations, gullies, dry riverbeds, what they call over there wadis, that may appear like it'd be a good place to build, but in the winter they become raging torrents of rushing water. Palestine is known for downpours that come up suddenly and turn those dry riverbeds and those dry wadis into raging rivers. And both times when Jesus describes the storms, three elements of bad weather are cited. Heavy rain, unexpected flash flood, and extreme winds. Those are the calamities that can befall inhabitants of Palestine during their rainy season, which runs from October to April, but especially from November to February, when 70% of the rain falls annually. Residents of those areas, especially up, or up close to the, to the Sea of Galilee, they've described as much as 40 inches falling as the winds whip up off the Mediterranean Sea and the rains come down from the hills. Now every house looks, looks good in good weather, but those kind of storms reveal the quality of the work and the foundations that have been laid by the builders. And it's interesting, what occupation would Jesus have had? He would have been a carpenter. You think he knew what he was talking about when he talked about people laying a foundation for a house? This isn't the words, these aren't the words of some scholar coming up with it in his study. These are the words and the illustration of a man who knew his stuff, a practical man. Now the wise builder represents those who put Jesus' words into practice. They too are building for the future. They need to prepare for the storms of life. But on the other hand, those who pretend to have faith, those who have a merely intellectual commitment, those who enjoy Jesus in small doses, those are the foolish builders. And when the storms of life come, their structures don't fool anyone, especially God. Now how is it that we could hear these words of Jesus and not obey them? Let me give you three reasons. First of all, sometimes we choose not to act 
when we should. How many of you have ever procrastinated? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not going to procrastinate today. I'm going to put it off till tomorrow. <laughs> right. You know, you can come to church and thoroughly enjoy the sermon, leave the place of worship with every intention of doing what we've been neglecting. But Sunday's a day of rest, Monday's a day of work, and so by the time Monday evening comes around, we've lapsed back into the same routine of another unproductive week, and so we don't act sometimes when we should. Second, we don't want to be inconvenienced, Right? We don't like to be inconvenienced, like the foolish man who didn't bother about the extra expense and time necessary for a solid foundation. Too many times, we want to take the easy way out. We're willing to obey Christ as long as it's pleasant and convenient, but when His will conflicts with our will or when His schedule conflicts with our schedule, we're ready to part company. We forget Christ's mission to earth was not to make it easy for us, it was to save us. And another reason, sometimes we just don't look ahead. Focus too much on right now that we forget to plan wisely for the future. And I think this world is full of people who wish that years ago they had taken a different route. Because they didn't build on the right foundation for their life. And it's really serious when we make those kind of mistakes on the spiritual level. And of course, that's Jesus' whole point with this parable. I think this is the strongest lesson Jesus ever gave us on obedience. These are words that ring through the centuries. They are not ordinary words. They're not the words of a preacher or a teacher or a prophet, but they are so much more. They express the stupendous claim of Jesus to be the only guide for our souls. Jesus laid it down as a positive and inescapable law that all men had to obey Him, that we must listen to Him and keep His words, or else our lives will crumble in defeat. And so the sermon ends with what's been implied from the beginning, the demand for radical submission to Christ. One scholar says, entrance into the kingdom then does turn on obedience after all. Not the obedience that earns merit points, but, which, but that obedience which bows to Jesus' lordship in everything and without reservation. Now the parables end on kind of a flat note, don't they? Do you remember the song we teach the children? And the house on the sand... Fell flat. That's right. So the parables kind of end on a flat note in that respect. Fell with a great crash, Jesus said. However you word it, the conclusion of the parable is meant to wake us up, shake us into action. And it's a bit surprising to find that not just the parable, but Jesus' whole sermon ends with this loud crashing alarm. Now, Jesus didn't always end parables that way. 
There are those times when he ends them in a positive way, like he does in Luke 15, 32, and said, we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. That ends in a positive way. Luke 17, 19, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. A positive. John 8, 11, neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. But there are times where Jesus concludes his stories with a warning. And that is the case here. When Jesus gets tough, that's when he wants us to face the seriousness of our decisions and his warnings about eternity. He wants us to understand fully the consequences of rejecting his claims or ignoring his teachings. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul takes that same approach when he concludes his encouragement not to lose heart, not to give up, but to always be confident. And then in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 he writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is doing for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. That's a warning. And that's what happens here when Jesus finishes this sermon. He ends with a warning. If you don't obey my words, you're headed for destruction. If you build your life on any other foundation than me, he says, in the end, you'll come crashing down. So I don't think I have to tell you anymore what this means. I think it's crystal clear. Don't just be a hearer of the word. Do what it says. Be a true disciple of Jesus. Do what he says. In every realm of life. When it comes to salvation, do what he says to do. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Repent of your sins, confess your faith in Him, be immersed for the remission of your sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then live a life of faithfulness and obedience to what He says to do. In regard to everything in life, do what He says. If you have a decision you'd like to make today, you can meet me right down front as we stand and as we sing.